the Bible passage is from Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talita kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Father God, I, I just pray as we come to your word that the, the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth might be pleasing in your sight. Amen. Um, I'm not sure what you had for school lunch. Um, school lunches have, have changed a lot over time. So uh, when I was a kid, um, I was one of four boys and we had for lunch every day of our school life, Vegemite and cheese sandwiches. Um, we had three of them each. So every Sunday night, my mother would start making Vegemite and cheese sandwiches. Um, and she'd make enough for the whole week. And then we'd put them in freezer bags and then put them in the freezer. Uh, my mother was a piano teacher. She started early morning. So every, every morning we'd get up early, take our frozen sandwich out of the freezer, put it in the school bag and hoped it thawed by lunchtime, right? So when I had my daughters, I just thought they would want the same thing, right? So, so when my girls started going to school, I started wheeling out the Vegemite and cheese sandwich. Now, the problem was our world had changed and my, my girls were now at a school uh, that had, where they had friends who were from all over the world. 
And their friends were bringing culinary delights to school every day. Their Korean friends would bring um, beautiful dumplings. Uh, they had friends from China who would bring noodles. And, and at about second grade, I was sacked from making lunch, right? And I'd walk into the kitchen sometimes when my girls were making lunch, and I'd say, what's for lunch today? And they'd say, Dad, we're making a, like a udon noodle with a pork crisp. You know, or they'd say things like, I'm making Moroccan couscous with a bit of gravy. And I'd go, what? How, how, has, how has life changed for the better for these kids, you know, and for us and our cuisine that we have at home? But I must confess to you that even though our food has got much more tasty, there was something really practical about the sandwich. Like the sandwich is like food with handles. You know, it has this very simple pattern. A, B, A. Bread, filling, bread. So you can really hold this thing, right? It goes in the school bag, you pull it out, you hold it. And the bread is like a canvas, like it's a little bit plain, but it, it's kind of this palette that you can paint on. And then, of course, you have the filling. And that's where the secret is. Now, my favorite sandwich today is the, the avocado, chicken, and uh, cranberry. The sandwich has evolved and become much more complicated. But as you read the, the gospel, it turns out, now you're going to have to work with me here, that, that Mark likes a sandwich. Uh, he has this special way of telling a story that scholars have called the Markan sandwich. Like he likes to take a story about Jesus and then insert another story about Jesus in the middle. So this story about Jesus begins, then it stops, it pauses, and then there seems to be a distraction in the middle. And then he comes back and finishes us off, right? And this is what we have in Mark chapter 5. Mark scholars reckons Mark actually used this, this technique of storytelling 11 times in the Gospel of Mark, right? But here in this story, you get the story of Jairus' daughter, and then it stops, and in the middle of it, you get the story of a hemorrhaging woman or a bleeding woman, and then it goes back to the story of Jairus. Now, why does Mark do this? Well, in truth, by doing this, uh, the stories told together, woven together like this, tell us more than they could ever do just simply on their own. Like James Edwards says this, he says, um, the flavor of the outer story adds zest to the inner one, and the taste of the inner one is meant to turn and permeate the, the outer one. So, here in these stories, I want to explore three points. And the first is this, that Jesus goes with us on the worst of our days. The second is this, that Jesus makes room for people on the margins. And thirdly, I want to explore how the poor can become our teachers. So it begins in verse 21. So read with me there. It says, when Jesus again crossed by boat to the other side of the lake, a loud crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she might be healed and lived. So Jesus has been in the regions of the Gerasenes, right? And he's done this extraordinary thing for a Jewish rabbi. He's gone into a Gentile area. Uh, it's actually a pig farming area. 
And he goes to an unclean place, to a cemetery, a place of the dead, right? And there he meets a man with a hundred unclean spirits. And in, in this extraordinary story, he casts the demons out, but you might remember it. The pigs just, they then run off the edge of a cliff. Now, the local farmers are so terrified by these events that they ask, they plead with Jesus to leave the area. Now, Jesus leaves the man who's been healed as someone who can give witness to what's just happened and who Jesus is. But he honors their request and he leaves. So he goes to the other side of the Lake Galilee. And this time he's welcomed by the crowd in contrast to the crowd who's just asked him to leave. And this crowd is thronging around him. And this man emerges from the crowd and we find out that he's a really important man. He's a synagogue ruler. So synagogue rulers were voted on by their local community. Their job was to look after the maintenance of the synagogue, procure scrolls that they could teach from and read from. They were to book in rabbis. So sometimes they'd book in Jesus to come, right? So, so they were people of influence and esteem in their local community. So not only has this man got a position, he's also got a name. So he's named in the gospel. So we find out that his name is Jairus. He's got position and a name. Now, what happens next is that even though he's got both of those things, he's a man in desperate need because his daughter is 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 ill so ill she's on the edge of death and for a minute all those things don't matter anymore his status and his name they don't matter because he falls before jesus feet and begs he pleads with jesus to come to his home and touch his daughter so that she might live so name status don't matter anymore because his life has been rocked. And that can be true for us too, can't it? We can be traveling through life and we can fall into the trap of thinking that we can make our life secure by the status we achieve and the name we develop, right? We can, we can try and make ourselves secure by our level of income, our social status, maybe our academic achievements, and we can make these the ultimate reality or pursuit of our lives. But then something comes that takes that away in a moment. Maybe it's a job loss. Maybe it's an illness in the family. Maybe things don't pan out and you're, and you're bitter. Maybe it's a broken relationship. And then in that moment, you find yourself intensely vulnerable, wondering if anyone can help you. <laughs> Sometimes this happens to us as churches too, don't we? We build our plans. We make our yearly calendars. We have all these programs that we run. And then a pandemic comes <laughs> and we find out we're not in control. This weekly rhythm that we've had of coming to church, suddenly we can't do it in the same way. And we panic. Now the beautiful thing about this moment in the gospel happens in verse 34. When this man called Jairus, he has a name, he has significance, all that's been taken away. But when he goes to Jesus and asks for help, how does Jesus respond? You look at verse 24, it says, So Jesus went with 
him. Jesus went with him. So he finds out on the worst day of his life, when he's at the most desperate hour of his life, he approaches Jesus. Jesus, God revealed. Uh, Jesus, the son of God, you know, the, the God who holds the universe in his hands, right? Jesus, who has a mission to seek and save that which is lost. Jesus, who has a plan and really important stuff to do. And this guy with a desperate need comes to him. And, you know, we find out in this story that Jesus is approachable, that Jesus will actually alter his plans. Like he's going somewhere and this desperate man asks him to come to his house. You know what Jesus does? He stops and he changes his direction and he goes with this man at this terrible moment in his life. And I don't know if you've discovered this yet on the journey of faith. But I have found when you come to the most desperate hour, when you're alone, when you're very vulnerable and you reach out to Jesus, you find out that he's approachable, that he does not forsake you. He does not leave you in the most desperate hour of your life. You can call out to him and he will go with you. Jairus is about to discover that, this really important man, that Jesus will go with him. And I trust that you would know that Jesus will go with you. But then we find out that Jesus gives attention to the people on the margins. Because we find out as Jesus and Jairus head off, that this man who has a name and status will be pushed to the margins of this story for a minute. Like he... Even though he's got all that going for him, that will be forgotten for a moment as we focus on another person. Read with me in verse 24. It says, A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. So in contrast now to Jairus, who has a name, we have a nameless woman who approaches Jesus. And we find out that she is a nameless, bleeding or hemorrhaging woman. And for a string of reasons, that makes her a woman of low status. The fact that she's a woman in a patriarchal Middle Eastern culture at that time in history means she is of low status. The fact that she was unwell and bleeding meant that life was very uncomfortable for her physically. But it also meant that she couldn't be part of life uh, at, the, at the place of worship, the temple, because she was perpetually unclean. Right? She was isolated and withdrawn for her community. Not only that, we find out that she's isolated for the, from the worshipping community and from physical health and all of those things, we find out that she was poor. Like she'd spent all she had on doctors, uh, all she had, and she hadn't got any better. So to add to all these social dimensions of her poverty, now she was, she was poor and had nowhere to go. And this is often the nature of poverty. We find it in our, in our work around the world that it doesn't just mean the loss of money. It's this complex interplay of factors that leaves you in a desperate situation. 
like in Nepal, one of the places we work, I just remember hearing an example of this in the, a woman called Fulmati. Um, Fulmati was married and had her first child. And when her, her son was one year of age, her husband abandoned her. He just disappeared. And he was the provider for the family. So, so what she decided to do was become a daily worker. So you go down to the local market and you just offer yourself for any kind of work you can find to bring an income. Um, so they lived from day to day uh, in survival mode. And when her son was about 12, um, she thought, we can't do this anymore. I can't afford school for him. So I need to send him off to India to work with relatives. So he left and went to work in India um, and he would make money and send home money for her just to get by. So she started with this money that was sent home to buy goats and make a small goat herd. Uh, but then she got sick, right? So she couldn't work and she couldn't look after the goats. So she had to sell the goats, right? And then, and then the son was sending money home, but now it was just for her to survive. Then COVID swept through India and he lost his job. So he was sent home and now he was home and they had two mouths to feed and no, no income. So she went to a, a, a little savings group that she was part of to ask for a loan. And then they said, you've got, you've got no way of repaying us. We will not give you a loan. And she talks about this. She said, this was the hardest time for me. There was no one there to whom I could share my feelings or ask for support. I used to beg for food from my neighbors, but I dared not visit my neighbor's home to share my emotions. I was alone. This is kind of the nature of poverty, isn't it? It's, it's, it's degrading and humiliating in so many ways. But that's not the end of the story of poverty, right? Even, even though, going back to our woman, her situation was equally as denigrated and, and, and poor and vulnerable, there was still something about her. Look at verse 27. So even though she's reached this place at the bottom of her life, it says, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. So here the story begins to be flipped on its head, right? So we're trained to see this woman as just purely vulnerable, but there's these hints that maybe actually we don't just have a vulnerable person who we bend down to help. We actually might here have an example of what discipleship looks like. Because he is a woman who hears about Jesus and then she acts on the basis of that hearing. Maybe I'm overreading this, right? But Mark 5 follows Mark 4. And Mark chapter 4 is all about how you hear Jesus. Like some people hear about Jesus and they don't listen at all. And, and Jesus said that's like someone, you know, sow us, sows seeds and it falls on the ground and they don't listen. So the you know, the bird comes away and snatches it. But he talks about this fourth category, these people who hear the word of Jesus, they accept it, and then they believe, and then they produce fruit, right? That's in Mark chapter 4, right? And then you have this woman who hears about Jesus, 
and she acts by pursuing him. And then we have this amazing response. Um, you know, in contrast to Jairus, Jairus has a need, but he has status. So he emerges from the crowd, falls at Jesus' feet, and asks Jesus to divert his path to come to his house, right? Now, this woman has such great faith that she doesn't want to even interrupt Jesus. She thinks, if I just sneak up behind him, so she sneaks out of the crowd from behind, she thinks, if I just touch the tuft of his cloak, right? I don't even need to distract him or speak to him. I'll sneak in, I'll touch his cloak, and then I'll be healed. And it's a sense that Jairus had faith, but this woman had faith. <laughs> Do you get what I you know, she's, she's much less demanding. So that's what she does. She sneaks up. She, she touches the hem of his robe. And she is healed. Verse 29. Immediately her bleeding stopped. And she felt in her body that she was freed for her suffering. Now she thinks to herself, I'm just going to sneak away now. The job's done. I'm physically healed, right? I'm just going to get away. But Jesus won't have that, right? Now, there's a bit of suspense here because traditionally, if a rabbi is touched by an unclean woman, you know, they don't always get the greatest response. You know, they could be kicked away or, you know, the crowd could shush them away. Don't bother the clean rabbis, particularly when you're unclean. And we don't know at this stage how Jesus will respond. But what Jesus does is this. It says, once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, he turned around to the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? Now, we don't find out here in Mark, but we find out in Luke, it's Peter. It's usually Peter who responds in this way because he says, you see these people crowding against you? Like, can you see everyone here? This is like a mosh pit. This is... And you want to know who touched me? And Jesus does what he often does to Peter. He kind of ignores him, right? And, and he says, who, who touched me? You can imagine this crowd going quiet. You can imagine the fear in this, this woman's heart. For most of her life, she'd been ignored. And she was quite happy to be invisible. And she doesn't know what's going to happen. And for a moment... Jesus is just opening up the stage to put this woman right at the center. Because in verse 33, it says this, the woman, knowing what had happened to her and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth, right? So this woman is now at the center of all things, all these crowd is peeled back and they're looking on this encounter with Jesus and this woman. And Jesus gives her a voice and she begins to tell the story. We, we just find out it's the whole truth. So we're guessing he can't, she just can't, she's told her testimony. <laughs> you know, her great vulnerability. Uh, she probably shared about that. Then she probably shared about her great tenacity without knowing it. You know, just her determination to get to Jesus. And then and then she told with great joy about her body had been sick and now it was whole and healed. So she tells this story and she's trembling. So in the Greek, it means she's physically shaking, like she's terrified because she knows Jesus is a rabbi. And then you get this, this incredibly beautiful moment where at last she gets 
to find out how the Son of God looks on her. And in, in these words, he says to her, daughter, daughter. Can you imagine that A woman who's unseen? No one cares about her. And here she's been called a daughter. He says, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. You know, earlier in this story, we found out there was a father named Jairus whose daughter was sick. And he, was, he so loved her that he didn't care if he made a fool of himself. But he just wanted his daughter healed. And here in this story, we've got a story of a daughter who is sick and there's a heavenly father who's prepared to make a scene, you know, to send his son so that they might meet, so that she might be restored from her suffering. This is an incredible moment where this woman realizes how precious and loved she is by God. She's a person on the margins, but she's loved and seen. Remember this incredible story of Bryant Myers, who, uh, who wrote this wonderful book called Walking with the Poor. And he talks about he was in the, in the Kalahari Desert with the San people. We used to call them the Kalahari Bushmen, right? And um, he was in this tribal group. Uh, they were sitting around a fire, and the gospel had just been shared with this group. And uh, he was unpacking the situation with one of the women in the, the tribe through a translator and just asked her, how did she hear what she just heard? And, and she said in response, she said, you know, I, I could believe that the Son of God could die for the sins of a white man. She said, I could even believe maybe that the Son of God could even die for the sins of a son uh, a son man. But I can't believe that the Son of God could give his life for me. She, she thought she was of so little value and worth that the gospel couldn't even be good enough for her. Now, that began a journey of further discussion where she found out that the Son of God died even for her. There's this, this, this guy called Jayakuma Christian, a wonderful Indian Christian man, who said this. He says, Jesus enables the vulnerable to lift their heads and hold them high, to recognize their own dignity, and to begin to see themselves in a new light. After their encounter with Jesus, they are transformed into people who know themselves to be children of God. You know, as, as churches, we have so much to do, don't we? We have programs, we have evangelism, and all of them are really, really important. But I think this story says to us that in the midst of everything we do as church communities, we have to carve out space like Jesus did in this story for particularly the marginalized. You know, so when, when you guys have given to the Ukraine appeal you've enabled churches to do that. They've literally altered the way they did life as a church, you know, moved the furniture. The great thing, I, wish, I forgot to bring the picture, but I had this picture of this church building where they had pews and a drum kit, and the drum kit's been pushed to the corner. The pews are heaped, um, 
heaped on top of each other at the back, enough to give an old Baptist a heart attack, right? <laughs> but like I said, the, the whole church sanctuary is filled with, with stretches. They've bought washing machines, the Wi-Fi. But their church actually carved out space to respond to the needs of the world. And I think this story tells us if we're to reflect the heart of God, we have that same calling to make room for people on the margins. But at the same time, it doesn't mean he stopped loving us. Like Jesus still loves Jairus, you know? He still cares for him. We can do both. And that's what I wanted to take you to now, the end of this story. I'm nearly at the end. You know, because what happens next is this woman's healed. Um, and we find out after that in verse 35 that things for Jairus have turned for the worst. He says, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus and the synagogue leader. And they said, your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. So this is where we get a glimpse of perhaps why Mark put these stories together. Because, you know, maybe, maybe she's just an interruption. Maybe this woman coming into the story held, held Jesus up enough for Jairus' daughter to die. Maybe that's one way of looking at this story. But perhaps there's another way. Perhaps... This isn't an interruption. She's actually an example of faith. The example of faith and trust that Jesus, that Jairus needs. Because, you know, let's think about this for a minute. You've got a crowd of people telling Jairus, stop bothering Jesus. Your daughter is dead. The story is over. Like, go home and mourn. So what kind of faith should Jairus have? What kind of trust should he have? Where does he go from here? Well, he needs the same kind of faith that this nameless hemorrhaging woman had, right? What kind of trust in Jesus should Jairus have? He should have the same kind of trust in Jesus that this nameless hemorrhaging woman had. What kind of tenacity of faith must Jairus have? He must have the same kind of faith that this woman just demonstrated. And thankfully, having seen this example, Jairus goes with Jesus. And if you fast forward the story to verse 41, you find Jesus in the room of this little girl with a dad. And it says in verse 41 that he took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was just 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. And he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this woman and told them to give her something to eat. Can you see how this reversal has taken place? This nameless hemorrhaging woman has become the teacher or the disciple example for this named important leader. And that's where walking with the poor and the vulnerable around the world as churches and in individuals isn't a one-way relationship. You know, it's not just a matter of us bending down to help those who need us. 
Like, as we walk with the vulnerable and the poor, we become more like God wants us to be. We become more the church that God wants us to be. We become generous like our Heavenly Father, who calls us not to be tight-fisted but open-handed. Ah, the Gospels are always reminding that life does not consist of the abundance of our possessions, right? So if, as we are generous, we're reminded of who we truly, truly are in Christ, we become a more accurate reflection of who Christ is in the world as we work with the poor. But as we walk with the poor, we find these examples of faith and tenacious belief in Jesus that teaches us. So in, in my life, I've had the privilege of visiting communities that probably would be described as vulnerable around the world. And countless times I've gone thinking that I have something to offer, that I have something to bring only to be taught a lesson of what faith is. So I've been up in the highlands of Papua New Guinea to communities that have no cash, but have taught me what hospitality is. I've had the privilege of visiting um, refugees, Burmese refugees on the border of Thailand. And uh, I thought I knew what worship was until I sat with these, these refugees who had very little but the way they praised God just made me feel poor, like I had nothing. I knew nothing of the faith that they had, and they became my teacher. Uh, I remember at Christmas time, I was asked to do devotions on Zoom for all our partners around the world. And so um, we did it on Zoom. So Zoom came up and there was these hundreds of faces came up. There was a you know, from Bangladesh, where we've lost 200 Baptist pastors to COVID. You know, we had uh, partners in India, in Uganda, in, in Nepal. And, and I was expecting to find a people who were discouraged by the pandemic. And they had been, like they all had stories of family members who died. You know, they stories of profound suffering. But what amazed me um, is at the end of the time together, we were broken into little Zoom rooms to have a prayer time. And I was put in a group with a man from Uganda who just came come out of hospital after suffering COVID, a woman from Nepal, uh, a man from uh, Cambodia, and we just began talking. And I've, I, I, I reckon I, I just had this incredible, robust, hopeful faith in Christ bouncing out of the screen. You know how Zoom's really difficult because it doesn't give you any energy? Well, that day it was the opposite. Like I was expecting to find depressed, discouraged followers of Jesus. But out of the screen popped these passionate people who loved and served Jesus, even though things were really hard. And the poor became my teacher. So I want to tell you this morning just three simple things. Thanks so much for having me. But Jesus goes with you on the worst of days. I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that to make people room for people on the margins. And thirdly, to walk with the poor because they'll help you to become what God wants you to be. I'll just finish with this quote. Um, again, it's to the poor and the non-poor need God's re redemptive help to recover their true identity as children of God, made in God's image and their true vocation as productive steward, given gifts by God to contribute to the well-being of all. Together, we become all that God wants us to be. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for this incredible story. We thank you for the God 
that is revealed to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you're accessible and you are generous and you are loving. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.